me please to Matthew chapter 24, first gospel, first book of the New Testament, Matthew 24. And if you have any hymn requests for Sunday nights, do keep the sheet still there in the narthex. So if there's a hymn you want to sing uh, on Lord's Day evening, just note the number or the name out there and we will work it into uh, the rotation. So Matthew chapter 24, now you are easily forgiven uh, if it takes you a moment to remember exactly where we were in this chapter last time we looked at it. Our last normal Sunday evening service was on December 4th. That's been more than a month. I actually had to go pull up the audio file and listen to the last minute to remember exactly where I stopped as we were going through Matthew 24. But we made our way right through about verse 25. So I think what I'd like to do is start reading from verse 22, and we will read until verse 35. So Matthew 24, beginning at verse 22, and hear now God's word. If those days had not been cut short, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be shortened. At that time, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Messiah, or there he is, do not believe it. For false messiahs and false prophets will appear and perform great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you ahead of time. So if anyone tells you, there he is out in the wilderness, do not go out. Or here he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as lightning that comes from the east is visible even in the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever there is a carcass, there the vultures will gather. Immediately after the distress of those days, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky, and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. Then will appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. And then all the peoples of the earth will mourn when they see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call. And they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of the heavens to the other. Now learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know that summer is near. Even so, when you see all these things, you know that it is near, right at the door. Truly I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Amen for the reading of God's word, and let's pray for his help. Father in heaven, again, we come to your word, and in your light we have life and we see life. So thank you for this passage. It's it's full of interesting details and exciting events, and we thank you for just the opportunity to dig into the word, to study it together, and to try to understand exactly what you're saying. And I pray especially then as we consider this word that you might give us understanding and that above all you might give us wisdom to know how to obey it, that above all we'll be doers of the word and we'll live in light of what you tell us here. So give us that help and glorify yourself, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, I will not recap everything that's been said in Matthew 24. I'll simply say this, that what Jesus gives us here in Matthew 24 
is a response to the disciples' question, which is provoked by Jesus' words in Matthew 23. Matthew 23 is Jesus' condemnation or denunciation of Israel's religious leadership. They failed to live out their identity as the people of God and lead the people accordingly. And so God announces a withdrawal of his presence, very much like what we read in the Old Testament in the books of First and Second Kings or the prophets. And because God is withdrawing his presence, their house is being left to them desolate. Well, this provokes the disciples to come to Jesus and say something along the line of, Lord, look at all these buildings. In other words, they hear what he's saying, but they can't quite grasp it. Really, God, you're going to withdraw your presence and your blessing from this city? Look at these buildings. Look at this temple. How could that be? And Jesus responds with the assurance that not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. A judgment is coming that will result in the destruction of the temple and the eventual destruction of Jerusalem. And that provokes the disciples to ask, tell us then, when will this happen? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Two questions. When will that judgment occur? And what will be the sign of your coming that is the end of the age? And those two questions are the exact two questions that Jesus answers in this chapter. If you read the Gospels, Jesus gets a lot of questions. He doesn't always answer them. But in this instance, he does. He says, I'll tell you when these things will happen, the judgment, and I will tell you what my coming will be like. Now, what I have submitted to you, what we've argued from this passage, is that the bulk of chapter 24 answers the first question. When will these things happen? In other words, when will this temple and city be destroyed? Most of what Jesus says in this chapter pertains to that event which came to historical fulfillment in 70 AD. I'll say a little bit more about why that is as we pick up the message tonight. That answer concerns verses 4 through 35. Then when Jesus comes to verse 36, he begins to answer the second question. What is the nature of his return? And as we first notice when we introduce the chapter to you is those two sections are very different in their style. Verses 4 to 35 give us a lot of detail, a lot of things to look for. A lot of time words. When you see this, then do this. When you see this, then this will happen. When Jesus gets to verse 36, he shifts his style and says, But about that day, the day of my return, well, no one knows that day or hour. So we have just from the very beginning an indication that we're looking at two separate events. And as we pick up the passage tonight, I want to continue to emphasize uh, that difference and show why the first section pertains to the judgment on Jerusalem. Now, what we looked at when we went through the chapter is that Jesus begins by giving just some general signs. Hey, as the revolution begins to foment, as things happen that brings Rome's displeasure and invasion, there will be wars and rumors of war and civil unrest. These are the kind, it's just what society is like when it's unstable and when revolutions are happening and when big events are starting to happen. During that time, 
you, my disciples, may experience persecution. If the religious leadership is rejecting me and doubling down on their current way of being the people of God, all the focus on the temple, all the focus on restoring Israel, if if they continue to double down on that, then that's going to mean harassment for you. You will be persecuted as you continue to preach my message. Then in verses 15 to 28, Jesus begins to shift to the events that get closer to Jerusalem's destruction, the appearance of the abomination of desolation, some sacrilegious presence that defiles the temple, appealing to an image from Daniel, fulfilled when the Greeks invaded the temple about 200 years before Jesus' time, and that will happen again when the Romans come in and when the zealots take control of the temple and use it for purposes God never intended. All of those things are pertaining to the coming destruction of Jerusalem. And in the first verses that we read today, verses 22 to 25, Jesus also warns them that in the midst of all this civil unrest, in the midst of all this civil conflict, and in the midst of this revolutionary movement, there will also be false messiahs appearing. People who claim to be Israel's deliverer, who may even be doing signs and wonders, or at least there will be reports of them doing signs and wonders. And Jesus says, don't be deceived, don't follow them. So let's pick up then with the very next verse. The last verse we looked at in detail was verse 25. So let's begin tonight with verse 26, where Jesus says, So if anyone tells you, there he is out in the wilderness, do not go out, or here he is in the inner room, do not believe it. Again, warning them about false messiahs and prophets. Josephus, the Jewish historian who is an eyewitness of these events, he notes one by the name of Simon Bargoria, who was regarded by the Jews as a king and who was eventually paraded and executed in the Roman triumph as the enemy's general. So, sound familiar? Someone who arose as a deliverer of the people, a challenger of Rome, was ultimately caught by the Romans and executed and killed. What that person does not have to their account is eyewitnesses of his resurrection. But since people aren't listening to Jesus, and they aren't interested in his kind of kingdom... They want the kingdom of throwing off the Romans. Then those kinds of leaders easily gain a following. They claim that God is on their side and that through their program, God will intervene to restore Israel. And they found a welcome audience. And so Jesus says, hey, they may be out in the wilderness. That's where those kind of movements might start. Or they might be in the inner room, might be hiding when he's in the city so as not to be caught. But if those kinds of people arise, do not listen to them. Why? Because when I finally come again, it will be unmistakable. Verse 27, as lightning that comes from the east is visible in the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. When the true Messiah returns, it will be impossible to miss. Now, the fact that he refers to his appearance here does not mean that this section is relating to his appearance. In fact, he's introducing his appearance to show how different it is from everything that will be going on in this time leading up to the destruction of Jerusalem. When I was in Somerville on one of those visits recently, I saw a sign on the side of the road that said, Jesus already returned. 
And I didn't want to be you know, smug or arrogant. I thought, I don't know what explanation they would give, but I know that is wrong. It, it cannot mean, the Bible can't mean what it can't mean. Jesus says it will be unmistakable. Now, verse 28, this cryptic saying is a little hard to decipher. Wherever there is a carcass, there the vultures will gather. But he's probably just referring to these kind of events as a way of saying, when you see these signs, then you know that this reality is approaching. If you see buzzards overhead, or I actually see them on top of this building all the time, which is kind of creepy. I don't know what they're looking for. But when you see them, uh, you know something dead is nearby. When you see these kinds of signs, then you'll know Jerusalem's fall is very near. Now, as we come to verse 29, a lot of folks are willing to grant that Matthew 24 refers to the fall of Jerusalem. But when they get to these verses, this is where they may see the shift where Jesus begins to refer to his second coming. And they may or may not introduce a time gap there, or they may think that Jesus has been talking about another fall of Jerusalem, perhaps in the future after a temple is rebuilt. I don't think you have the shift yet. I think verses 29 through 31, despite their cosmic language, are continuing to refer to the fall of Jerusalem. And let me tell you why. First, look at how verse 29 begins. Jesus says, immediately after the distress of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. Whatever those events refer to, they happen immediately after what he has already discussed. And I think we've made a good case for seeing everything up to this point as referring to the fall of Jerusalem. He'll make another statement in verse 34 that I think reinforces that and drives it home. But whatever he describes here is the next event, the very next event in the timeline that he is outlining. Now, we may wonder, okay, how can the sun be darkened and the moon not give its light and the stars fall from the sky, and the heavenly bodies be shaken, and the Son of Man appear in heaven. How can that be a reference to the events of 70 AD and the destruction of a city? Here's what I would argue. Jesus is here using the colorful language of Old Testament prophecy, where the Old Testament refers to the destruction of cities, to the judgment of God in history, as cities fall, and he's using that language to refer to the fall of Jerusalem and his vindication as the Son of Man and a prophet. In other words, what the disciples will need to focus on here is the way God manifests his rule among his people. Now, why do we say that? First, depending on your edition of the Bible, Verse 29 may be set in a different format. So if it's indented or if there's quotation marks around it, that's because these are all Old Testament citations. The first lines come from Isaiah 13.10. I'll read you that verse. The stars of heaven and their constellations will not show their light. The rising sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. Now, if you, now you, first you hear how similar that is to what Jesus is saying. 
If you look up in your Bible, Isaiah 13, it will probably have this heading, a prophecy against Babylon. And pretty much all interpreters agree that Isaiah 13 was fulfilled when Babylon fell. Sometimes, often in fact, the prophets use the language of the stars losing their light and the sun falling and the moon being darkened to describe cataclysmic events in history. We actually still do this. Do you ever use the phrase earth-shattering event? Do you mean that literally? No, you mean to say this is so significant. It's as if it rattled the earth. That's what Jesus is doing here. There's a second reference in this verse, Isaiah 34, 4. All the stars in the sky will be dissolved, and the heavens rolled up like a scroll. All the starry hosts will fall like withered leaves from the vine, like shriveled figs from the fig tree. That's Isaiah 34, 4. If you look up Isaiah 34 in your Bible, it probably has this heading, Judgment Against the Nations. And if you read to the chapter, when you get to verse 9, that focus has funneled down to a focus on Edom, one of Israel's neighbors. Now, how many times do the stars fall and the sun lose its light? Only once, probably, when the end of time finally happens. But all of these events have already happened in history. And yet God describes them as if the earth and the cosmos was falling apart because he wants to draw significance to those events. The judgment of God in history is that significant. One commentator writes, this is language about cosmic collapse used by the Old Testament prophets to symbolize God's acts of judgment within history with the emphasis on catastrophic political reversals. And by the way, so Jesus is taking that language And he's using it to describe the judgment on Jerusalem. Which, by the way, would have been shocking to his audience. All those cities I just mentioned in the Old Testament, those are pagan cities. Those are rebellious cities. Those aren't the people of God. For Jesus to use this language on God's own city would have been very assaulting to the current way of thinking. But Jesus needs them to realize how important this is. So now come to verse 30. Then will appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. And then all the peoples of the earth will mourn when they see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Now again, language if we take it at face value, sounds like the appearance of Jesus, which as he just said would be unmistakable and you wouldn't be able to miss it. But again, I submit that Jesus is actually describing with this language a historical event which happened in A.D. 70. Now here's why. First of all, Jesus has already spoken this way in Matthew's gospel. You remember back in Matthew 10, verse 23, when he sent the disciples out on a preaching tour, he said, you will not finish going through the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. He told them, you're going to go out on a preaching tour, and it extended a little past their current situation. He talked about visiting Gentiles and visiting kings. But he said, look, this preaching tour won't end before the Son of Man comes. And again, I won't rehearse everything from there, but I'll simply point you again to the fact that that language is based on Daniel 7. Listen to these verses, verses 13 and 14. 
In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, <clears throat> excuse me, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. In Daniel's vision, he sees the Son of Man. The Son of Man is coming with the clouds of heaven. But where does the Son of Man go? When he comes with the clouds of heaven, where does he go? Into the presence of the Ancient of Days. It's an Old Testament image where God rides on the clouds of heaven. And then he goes into the heavenly throne room. And he stands before the Ancient of Days and is given universal sovereignty. When Jesus says, you'll see me coming on the clouds of heaven, the word coming is loaded for us because we're used to thinking of the second coming. We could as well render it going. You'll see me going across the clouds of heaven. And what that means is you will see me vindicated. You will see me receiving universal sovereignty. Why would Jesus speak that way? Because this Olivet Discourse is prophetic speech. He is predicting an event that won't come to pass for a little more than 40 years. How do you know if a prophet's telling the truth? Because what they predict comes to pass. Jesus is saying, you'll know you can trust me. Because you're going to see this event come to pass. When Jerusalem falls, that will be the sign of my vindication. That will be the sign that I'm the son of man and I have received this heavenly authority. That though I'm rejected by the leaders for what I've said, God has exalted me to his right hand. And as Messiah, I now rule over the nations of the earth. And by the way, in Daniel's vision, if you want to do a little further study on Daniel 7, not to get too deep in the weeds here, but the Son of Man is a symbol of God's people, which that would have said a lot to Daniel and his people who are suffering in Babylon. It's a symbol of God's people who suffer and are eventually vindicated. Well, Jesus is saying, I'll be the representative of that people. And I'll suffer and I'll be vindicated. And then God's true people will find their, their identity through union with me. And by the way, that's a claim that can only be vindicated, not just by announcing Jerusalem's destruction, but by God raising him from the dead. And you may wonder, but wait a minute, again... It says all the peoples of the earth will mourn. That's got to be worldwide. Again, that's Old Testament language. Zechariah 12. And in context, it refers to the 12 tribes of Israel seeing this rejected and now exalted figure. We know that Zechariah is used right around this uh, Olivet Discourse here. Jesus refers to himself as the rejected shepherd and the killed shepherd. Those will be applied to Jesus' death and resurrection later in this gospel. Jesus is saying eventually the people of Jerusalem will recognize what they've done to their Messiah. And they'll mourn. 
But that morning will be because they'll see that I've been vindicated, that my words are coming true. And lastly, when Jesus says, you'll see the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. Sounds like there's a sign in heaven, but it could as easily be rendered a heavenly sign. You'll see the heavenly sign of the Son of Man, or or better yet, you'll see the sign of the heavenly Son of Man. What's the sign? It's the fall of Jerusalem. That's the sign that the Son of Man is heavenly. That is, he's been vindicated. Now listen, all this may sound like bad news to Jesus' disciples. Jerusalem's going to fall? The temple's going to be destroyed? I mean, that's the center of our religious life. That's the center of our national identity. But Jesus gives them good news in verse 31. And he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of the heavens to the other. What is the result of Jesus' heavenly enthronement? He gathers his chosen people from the four corners of the earth. That is the great promise of the Old Testament prophets. It is right there early in the Old Testament in Deuteronomy 30. If you sin against me, I'll scatter you. But then one day, I'll gather you from the four corners of the earth. Isaiah 27 gives the same promise. And it says, when I gather you, I'll do it with a trumpet blast. This is not the trumpet blast of the Lord appearing at the end of time. This is the promise that God will gather his people. And Matthew's gospel has already anticipated it. Remember uh, the centurion who came to him and said, just speak the word and my servant will be healed. And Jesus says, on that last day when we have the great feast, many are going to come from the east and the west and they're going to sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob at the great banquet. I'm going to send out my angels. I'm going to send out my messengers and they're going to gather my elect. And when we read angels here, they're the ones doing The gathering, the word translated angels, can also be translated as messengers. So it could very simply be a reference to human messengers, those who take the gospel to the ends of the earth. Or maybe there's a little double meaning here. It's human messengers, but they're undergirded by spiritual power, the angels which put into effect God's will as he has ordained it. All of this really anticipates the Great Commission, right? And how does Matthew's gospel end? All authority in heaven and earth is given to me. Therefore, go and disciple the nations. This anticipates that. When I'm vindicated, you know I've got the authority. So go and I'll gather my people. It's a great double emphasis. Yes, an end of the old era due to judgment. And that's hard. But it's the beginning of a new era. Jesus's enthronement. And it is a very applicable message for you and me. Societies change. Kingdoms come, kingdoms go. And that can cause distress. That can have negative effects, but God's kingdom endures. And God's message is always the same to us. No matter what you see going on around you, don't get sucked in by that. You just go and gather my people. And so as we come then to verses 32 to 35, this is really just a summary uh, of the answer to the first question that Jesus has answered. What will be the sign? When will all these things happen? 
Jesus says this, verse 32. Now learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know that summer is near. Even so, when you see all these things, you know that it is near right at the door. When you see the fig leaves, you know summer is coming. When you see these preliminary signs, when you see this abomination of desolation, when you see the zealots starting to take over the temple and Rome drawing near, you know the total destruction is coming. Don't hold out hope that it's going to change. Just flee, as he said earlier in the chapter. Go gather my people. When will these things happen? Verse 34, truly I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. I think this is probably the strongest verse to contain the whole first part of the chapter to the events of A.D. 70. What Jesus predicts here has to happen before that generation passes away. And some of the attempts by alternate viewpoints to try to make sense of this verse, they they twist the word generation to, to make it have meaning. It can never bear. It means what it sounds like it means. This group of people, this current generation, you will see these things happen. And so he ends with this assurance in verse 35. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never Pass away. In other words, every word I've told you here is reliable. What I've predicted will come to pass. So it's the warning. When God's people don't bear fruit, when, when they don't show the world what God is like, when, when they don't live out their vocation as the people of God and keep the terms of the covenant, there's, there's judgment, but there's great assurance here. There's great mercy here that even when judgment comes, Jesus reigns. Jesus works through those who know him. Jesus identifies with those who believe in him. With those who acknowledge him as Lord, then he recognizes them as the true people of God and gives them hope that his kingdom endures, that his reign is powerful, and that his purposes do not fail. So let's give thanks to God for that. When we gather next week, we'll pick up then with the second answer to the second question, what will Jesus' return be like? So let's give thanks and pray. Father in heaven, again, we conclude today by bowing the knee to Jesus the Lord. I think that's been a theme that's kind of held together all of our considerations today, morning and evening, that Jesus is Lord. And we should put our faith in you, we should put our trust in you, that you raised him from the dead, that you vindicated him, that Christ is who he claimed to be, and in him is righteousness, forgiveness, life. And so I pray that we would acknowledge that, that we'd swear allegiance to that. Jesus is Lord, and that we'd now go out, be sent out this week to do your will. Wherever we are, whatever simple or complex, known or unknown, whatever it is that you have for us, help us to do it. Forgive us of our sins. Assure us of your presence, that you rule and reign at the right hand of the Father on high. And we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's... Close with hymn 585, Take My Life and Let It Be. Hymn 585, let's sing verses 1, 2, and 5. 585 verses 1, 2, and 5. Stand with me.